Hello, and welcome to Clearer Thinking with Spencer Greenberg, the podcast about ideas that matter. I'm Josh Castle, the producer of the podcast, and I'm so glad you've joined us today. In this episode, Spencer speaks with Jeff Anders. You'll notice that the beginning of this conversation touches on some of the same themes that were in the recent episode with Michael Nielsen, especially the segment about the rate of scientific progress. But then this conversation moves on to other topics, including the replication crisis, fast iterative experimentation, and why Jeff and Spencer have taken such a different approach to social science than others in the field. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on. I'm excited to have this chat with you. Thanks, Spencer. I'm excited for the conversation as well. Great. So the first thing I want to discuss with you is science. And more specifically, the question is, are we making progress? How fast is that progress? And so on. So I'd love to hear what you think about that. Sure. So one thing is, I think that it's actually really, really difficult to assess how fast scientific progress is going right now. You have basically, you know, some, you know, some people think that we're making tons and tons of breakthroughs. I mean, if you look at the total number of papers published, it's astronomical and continues to rise. Surely the number of papers is a really good proxy for how much science is occurring, right, Jeff? Well, it's this is something that leads people, a number of people to be concerned because you have essentially, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the graph of the number of papers going up, but it's, it's, it's pretty shocking. And then there's something like a sense that we aren't really making as much progress as that. There was one analysis I saw where what they did is they looked at the significance of scientific breakthroughs. I believe they did that by asking scientists about how important they were. This is the Nobel Prize laureate test, right? This is the from the Collison article? Yeah, from Collison article. Do you want to just describe what they did and, and what their conclusion was from that? Yeah, I mean, so it's an article on the Atlantic. People should check that out for a more sort of definitive rendering. But at least part of what they did was they spoke to... Nobel Prize winners, or sorry, they spoke to scientists about the importance of Nobel Prize winning discoveries in, I think they were doing this for physics. And so if you, you know, look at the beginning, you know, when the Nobel Prize is first getting going, it's given out to a number of things that might not seem as important. Then there's a whole bunch of breakthroughs that seem really, really important. And essentially they're using scientists' subjective estimates of the importance of the discoveries that are receiving the Nobel Prize as a way of trying to estimate how much scientific progress is being made. Using a number of different metrics, it looks like total productivity is going so total scientific advance per scientist is going down. And it's a bit tricky. I myself suspect that this is the case, though I think it's a bit hard to prove it by looking at things like, you know, the reports of, you know, scientists' subjective estimates for Nobel Prize winning things. Like, so for instance, there are a whole bunch of advances right now in artificial intelligence. If it turns out that artificial intelligence is as transformative as some people think, either the positive or negative scenarios, then it'll be a little bit hard to say that the average productivity per scientist was going down because we were about to hit such a large, or we're in the middle of hitting such a large increase. I mean, if you, if you look at the history, you have bursts of progress in different fields at different times. So it, 
you know, it, it could very well be, and I've you know, heard from a lot of people who seem to have a bunch of knowledge on these topics, that the rate of breakthroughs in physics is going down, but that doesn't necessarily speak to the total rate of breakthroughs overall. That's a really good point. And it seems just really clear that at least in the last five years, let's say, AI progress has been very fast, faster than most people thought would happen. But also, interestingly enough, a lot of the progress has not been so much completely new innovations per se, but just more processing, larger neural networks, more data, and then some cool tricks and some innovations, but that like it to, in a sense, a lot of it's just been driven by, you know, compute data and size. Yeah. And, and this is one thing that makes measuring progress really very difficult. There's, I mean, you know, I, I have the same sense that most of the progress in AI is not coming from improvements in algorithms. Um, it's coming from increases in compute, but then it's also pretty difficult to tell how much advance is happening overall in AI. So like there's some people who say that there's really a lot of advance occurring. Definitely GPT-3 is super impressive, but the, you know, there's an argument that not as much progress is happening because the actually we're just feeding more compute into the old algorithms and to get things that are, you know, much more transformative, you need new algorithms. So I think it's pretty hard to assess the progress in AI without having some sort of understanding of what really is going to constitute progress. Like, are you looking at the outcome in terms of how much society has changed? It looks like GPT-3 might change a bunch of things. Are you looking at advances in algorithms? And then there's a bunch of stuff recently indicating that some of the new frameworks or approaches actually really aren't that much more effective than things discovered 30 years ago. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I would just add to that that I think there are certain things that really were improvements that were made. Uh, for example, generative adversarial networks seem like yep. a genuine yep. improvement. And yep. that allowed for the first time AI researchers to do things like generate photorealistic faces that people cannot tell a difference between a face that was invented by an AI and like a real photo of a human face, which is pretty amazing. So that was a genuine breakthrough. Then there's like rectified linear units, which seem to have some desirable properties when you're building neural nets that may actually be an advantage for some things. Uh, There's attention, which is the idea that's used heavily in the GPT-3 model for your natural language processing. You know, Mm -hmm. so there, there are definitely some breakthroughs, but then it's like, you know, on some level, it's like, well, but those are important, but maybe the compute data and deeper neural nets is even more important. And then it's like, well, are we really making fast progress or are we just realizing the problem might be easier than we thought it is? Yeah. And, and I think, I think that's a great question. And I, I think that there's also a question of which problems are really being solved, where I think in a lot of cases, when you get advances in AI, What's happening is that we're realizing that there's some nice shortcut way to do a process that we didn't know that there was a shortcut for in the past. So like the way that humans produce language is certainly not the way that GPT-3 produces language, but it looks like if you take a very, very, very large amount of text and analyze a very, very, very large number of factors about it, then you get something that replicates a lot of the functions of regular language. And then scoring that in terms of total advance is really tricky. I mean, I think AI is one of the places where advances clearly are being made. 
And then I'm a bit uncertain between, you know, medium low in terms of advances versus medium high or something like that. Mm -hmm. And just for our listeners who are not familiar with GPT-3, the basic idea is that OpenAI created GPT-3 by training it on huge amounts of text. And essentially, the only thing it does is try to predict what text is likely to come next. So yeah. one way to imagine this, you know, imagine someone gives you a half-written essay or half-written piece of text, and they say, okay, write the rest of it. And it could be anything. It could be you know, a grocery shopping list, or it could be a piece of Python code, or it could be an essay or a poem or whatever. And then you had to try to write what came next. You know, you'd imagine you'd be pretty good at this, right? Like, you don't know exactly what's going to be next in the grocery shopping list, but you can kind of pick things that seem in the theme of the things that are already there. And so that's what GPT-3 does, but it was trained on absolutely massive amounts of data to do try uh, using an absolutely huge neural net. Uh, I think it's more than 100 billion parameters. Is that right, Jeff? Um, from what I understand. Yeah. So, so, you know, there's more than 100 billion numbers specifying the, this model, this machine learning model and what it does. And somehow that huge number of parameters captures within it much of the internet, you know, over 10,000 books. I'm not sure exactly how many they used, you know, a huge chunk of Wikipedia and so on. And so it's actually remarkably good at predicting what text comes next. And one thing that we learned from doing this that, that I don't think everyone realized is that the idea of predicting what text comes next actually contains within it many different intelligence tasks. And that's one of the things that makes GPT-3 so unique and interesting is that although it's only trained to do this one thing, this one thing encompasses many things. For example, it can solve simple analogies. It can write poetry. It can write essays. It can you know, generate things in the style of other people. It can even do simple language translation. It can even write simple code, like you know, if you're programming a website. And it's because all of those, in some sense, can be thought of as, guess what comes next tasks. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, this is sort of a perfect case for reflecting on the difficulties of assessing how much progress is being made, because on one hand, or by one measure, you could say, well, this is tons of progress, because now we have an algorithm that can do all sorts of things that we were not able to do before. On the other hand, there isn't a sort of conceptual breakthrough behind it. It's you know a pretty simple idea. What's happening is we're just feeding more data and computing power through it. Yep, yep. And so let's go back to the topic of science more generally. Yeah, sure. So my understanding is that there's two broad narratives about why science might be slowing down, if indeed it is. Yep. One of those is like the low-hanging fruit idea that okay, we're doing science, but we're studying the physical world and there's only one physical world. So we're going to first start by figuring out like the easy to understand things and then the somewhat harder to understand things and, and so on. And after we picked up all the low hanging fruit, we're going to get slower and slower. And that's not our fault. Uh, that's just the nature of reality. It's getting harder and harder to find things we don't already know. The other narrative is that it's something to do with human culture or institutions, essentially that our processes of doing science are getting gummed up we're getting worse and worse at doing these things or our institutions are getting more bureaucratic and less efficient. And I'm curious, what do you think of those two theories? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the low hanging fruit one, I think, and the, fir the first thing to say here is that I think the metaphor is sort of where the analogy is misleading. The, you know, the, the idea of low hanging fruit, you have your feet on the ground. There's some amount of fruit within reach. Once you, once you pluck that fruit, then you can't reach the higher fruit, except that if you imagine instead that what's happening is not that your feet are on the ground, you're actually climbing through the tree, then, well, 
you know, maybe after you pluck all the original fruit, then there's new fruit within reach and then even more. And so, I, and I think with scientific advance, the, every time you discover something, it changes the cutting edge. And so it puts you in a different situation. There's, there's a way that the low hanging fruit idea seems to make it almost into an analytic or conceptual truth that we would run out of discoveries to make. But I think that the distribution, uh, sort of the the facts of discoverability is, is this is an empirical claim. So I don't I don't think we should take the metaphor seriously. That, that's a really interesting point, and I, and I think I agree with that. And I, I would also add the population of society is increasing, right? That should you know we have more fruit pickers, right? A lot more yep. scientists. We yep. have better tools. You know, we've got these like you know super fancy fruit pickers now, and and we can yeah, exactly. you know, build a ladder. <laughs> Why exactly should we be running out of looking fruit? I mean, you can imagine eventually, you know, a super advanced technological civilization could run out of things to discover, but it doesn't feel like we're particularly close to that right now. Yeah, I mean, and and I think that there are a lot of reasons to think that there are tons of discoveries left to make. There's a couple different arguments for this. I, I myself tend to think a lot about the social sciences, like psychology and sociology and so forth. And I think that in any field where you have people who can do things practically, that shows that it's possible for the human mind to gain knowledge of some type in that area. And mm-hmm. so if you have people who are really good with people, people who are persuasive or who are good at conflict resolution or who, you know, know, and then people who can build institutions, switching from just a sort of one-on-one, but thinking more like groups, people who can build institutions. And there just are a lot of people who are very skilled at interacting with people. You could think of actors as one type, leaders, obviously. And then there are a whole bunch of people who are able to create new structures and organizations and institutions. And this has been happening all throughout human history. The fact that there are some people who can do that and do it reliably shows that there is knowledge there to be had. And then we can look in you know, our psychology and sociology texts and say, well, you know, do they explain how that works? No. Okay, great. That means there's knowledge that's still there to be had. I mean, you'll note there's a disanalogy with the physical sciences. Everything that people can do in the physical sciences, you can explain how they can do it using our theories. But it's not the case that everything people can do in the domains dealing with people can be explained by the theories. Therefore, there are tons of additional truths to find. But don't you realize that people are magical and resist understanding through scientific means? I mean, you know, that that is what people would have would have said about and did say in many cases about the things that we do understand now. So it's not surprising that people say that. But, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Like if you think about the difficulties involved in understanding, you know, really, really. So take quantum mechanics. You have things that are extremely small. Like, you know, much smaller than any, you know, human unaided by some, you know, advanced technology could see. And the way the entire system works is dependent in some way on how you observe it. So as you observe it, it changes or, you know, pick your favorite interpretation of quantum mechanics, but there's something strange going on with observers. And there's also the fact that the 
equations are sufficiently confusing in terms of what they actually correspond to in real life that we have a bunch of interpretations and we, we know what to predict, but you know, there's, you know, a question like, okay, many worlds interpretation versus Copenhagen interpretation. So we're dealing with a part of reality that is way beyond the realm of human senses and changes when we interact with it and has defied a lot of attempts to understand in a straightforward way. And yet we still understand it super well. And so anything that you'd want to say about people, it's going to be pretty hard to argue that it's going to be harder than that. Well, I guess you could you could make the argument, and I don't know if I believe this, but you can make the argument that evolution is kind of like a mad scientist because, you know, it's not planning in advance, oh, I'm going to make a very coherent seeming creature. It's basically just layering stuff on top based on what's working in that particular environment and then reusing things for other things. You know, it's sort of like people talk about, you know, the eye is not wired up the way you might expect in a human and it sort of could have been done more efficiently if it had been planned by an engineer. So, so you could imagine that human beings are just this incredible incredibly complicated mess of sort of semi-random things that happen to work, like, like a series of hacks built on top of each other, and that that might resist a kind of simple unified theory. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there, there's an important difference between the question of whether there will be a simple unified theory versus whether the thing can be understood at all. I guess I'd say it can't be so complex and so random that you don't have a lot of people who learn to work with it in practice. Like, you know, if we've got managers and startup founders and actors and, you know, orators and so forth, whatever the difficulty level is, they've learned to work with people. So, you know, maybe if people are a big pile of hacks, okay, great. But it's a finite pile of hacks that we can learn to interact with and describe. Yeah, it reminds me of the book Impro. I don't, I don't know if you ever read it, but it's a book about improvisation. It's very fascinating because it talks about how the author believed that improvisation often seemed stilted and unrealistic, and he was trying to understand why that was. And mm -hmm. what he realized is that a lot of improvisation misses like the social status dynamics in situation. So he developed a bunch of techniques to emulate the social status dynamics, and which he felt made his improvisation much more accurate. And then he taught others to do this. And so that's an interesting example of me of someone doing, like figuring out something about human psychology in an extremely applied kind of intuitive way for the purpose in his case of making art or making, you know, doing effective acting. Yes. Well, and, and I think that when you look at how the histories of successful fields develop, you at least very frequently have people uh, working from the perspective of engineering. They're trying to accomplish a particular thing. I mean, you could think about chemistry, for example, and then you have you know, early chemistry, which includes alchemy, and then there's some more mystical parts of that. But there are the parts where people were simply trying to figure out how to break down things into the basic elements. And there's, I mean, I think that, and this, this is something that's really quite interesting about how the social sciences are conducted today. They, there's a big difference between approaching something with an engineering mindset and then working on trying to extract theory from that versus trying to develop an abstract hypothesis and then test a person or a system that you don't understand very well. How do those differ and, and which, what do you think the advantages of each approach are? Well, the, I think that one of the big problems 
in developing any field is getting a phenomenon that is sufficiently reliable and sufficiently, let's just say sufficiently reliably detectable that you can build. It's, it's really interesting that the, you know, so when you start off you know, among the first sort of scientific knowledge, we're going to get astronomy where you're studying the stars and the stars are for the most part fixed and I mean, so you have the planets are moving around a bit more, but it's, it's a very, very, very stable circumstance that you can study. And, and then if you think about what happened with Galileo and, you know, so Galileo, somebody else invented the telescope, but Galileo had the great idea of trying to point it up at the stars. Galileo looks up and, you know, famously discovers a bunch of interesting things like the moons around Jupiter. But notably, what happened at that point was not that they, you know, Galileo and, you know, the other soon-to-be telescopic astronomers had a a really good understanding of how the telescope worked and all the observations were reliable. That's definitely not what happened. With Galileo's original telescope, it was really low quality. There, people, other people looking through the telescope couldn't, you know, sometimes they would see all four moons of Jupiter and sometimes they'd see two and sometimes they couldn't see any. Well, I have to say, even with a modern telescope, I sometimes look at it, I'm like, what? I can't see anything. It's uh, There's a subtlety to getting that to work right, right? Yeah, well, there's a bunch of things. So, you know, there's the question of having your eye and brain adjust to what you're looking for. A lot of telescopes produce artifacts. Like, you know, the when you look at the star and the star has its four-pointed shape, that's not how the thing actually looks. That's, you know, an artifact of how your measurement instrument is working. And And, and also at the time, people didn't understand optics. So you had a device and people were quite convinced that it worked for objects near the surface of the earth. So you could look over the horizon and see ships coming in before you could see it with the naked eye. And then the ships would actually come in. So, okay, the telescope works. We don't know how it works, but it does work. And it shows us things further away than we could regularly see. But then you point it up at the stars, okay, really sort of unclear what's going to happen. The thing that then happens in telescopic astronomy is people spend a ton of time trying to build better telescopes. You get larger telescopes, you get different ways of setting up the lenses, and the the people are essentially repeating the same observations over and over again. So it's like, so how many times does Galileo try to observe the moons of Jupiter. Well, I'm not sure, but a lot. And then do other people at that point say, okay, well, that's done. I'm just going to go look at something else. No, absolutely not. You get a new telescope, you look at the moons of Jupiter. And so you essentially have, and eventually you, you know, you are getting these initial observations. The observations are quite unreliable, but then you're developing instruments and trying to make the same observations. And then you can cross-check the observations and see, are you seeing the same thing I'm seeing? And then you'll have different theories about what you're seeing and so forth. But this is a, a process where the people are putting tons and tons of time into the development of the measurement tools and nailing down a basic set of observations that can be then used to calibrate those instruments. Okay, so I gave that example as a way of 
a sort of as an example of what happens sort of in early science when you when you think about i mean there's we could talk about physics more generally or chemistry but notably when you look at fields like psychology today i mean it's really interesting so there's replication crisis in psychology and in psychology you don't have this basic set of things that you know you can reliably measure such that whenever you develop a new measurement tool you test it against those things to make sure that your measurement tool is good. Well, I, I think psychologists might disagree with that. Like they might say, well, we have a, you know, the big five personality test that measures five factors of personality, openness, conscientiousness, emotional stability, extroversion, and agreeableness. And, you know, we can, whatever we measure, we can then make sure that it has the correlations you might expect with those five, you know, among other scales that are kind of accepted you know, this idea of, of different forms of validity, internal validity, external validity, and so on. So yeah, what's your thought on that? Yeah, so I think I would, I would really want people to look a lot more at the dynamics of how surveys work. So the way the big five are measured is that you give you give people a bunch of survey questions and they answer those. And I know that Spencer, you and your own work have spent a whole lot of time working on trying to get surveys to be more reliable. Yeah, it's been a fun and fascinating exploration. Right, but and and and, and fascinating because it's extremely hard, right? Yeah, let me give one anecdote about this. So we were trying to measure the sunk cost fallacy, which is the idea that people will not, they don't want their effort to be wasted. So they'll continue spending effort or time or money on something that even past the point where it's a good investment and they should know it's no longer a good investment, yet they'll do it anyway. And so we wanted to measure this effect. Like, do people have the sunk cost fallacy and, and create measures of individual differences of, you know, does Bob have it and how much versus Sally and so on. And so we used it quite, we started with a question that was inspired uh, by some questions using the academic literature. It wasn't quite the same as them, but it was inspired by them. But we'd say, imagine that you're sitting down at a restaurant and you order some food, but then you realize you're actually already full and you're not enjoying eating it. Do you finish the meal anyway? And the idea was, okay, this is going to be one way of looking at the sunk cost fallacy, mm -hmm. among other ways. And it turned out that uh, a lot of people said they they would eat the food anyway. And then we to try to understand whether it was really measuring sunk cost fallacy or some other phenomenon, we did one of our favorite things, which is we asked people to explain why they gave the answer they did, which is which is not done that often in social science, although it is done sometimes, and, and, and I highly advocate doing it. But anyway, we did this. And can you guess why people said that they were eating the food, even though they weren't hungry and weren't enjoying it? And I can think of a bunch of different reasons. I mean, one is going to be politeness to the, the other person. That's, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. It's a bunch of people said, well, I assume I'm going to be eating with someone else, even though we didn't say that in the problem. They said, I assume I'm eating with someone else, and I feel like it's rude or weird to just sit there and not eat it on my food. Yes. Uh, so then we, we said, okay, well, this is clearly not measuring what we intended. We modified the question. So we made it really clear that you're eating alone. And we we're like, ah, oh, we got it. And we did the same thing. We tested it. We asked people to explain their answers. And this time it worked better. But now some people were saying, well, the chef put so much time into making this food. Yeah. I would feel <laughs> guilty about not eating it. <laughs> Amazing. 
So we ended up, in order to actually get a question that we think is actually measuring the sunk cost fallacy, we ended up coming up with this like really complex scenario where you're like walking outside and you walk by like an ice cream truck and you buy ice cream and it's melting and you can't take it home with you. And it's like we had to design the, the yeah. question so carefully to try to yeah. even measure this thing. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and so I think that what's happening there is you're engaging in the process of instrument refinement, right? You're trying, you know, so the instrument is this question, right? If you have a bunch of questions, it's a survey and you're looking at all of the ways that this instrument may or may not be measuring the thing you actually wanted. And it's not necessarily the case, of course, that the people's self-reports are accurate, right? It could be that they're falling victim to the sunk cost fallacy, but they don't want to admit that. And so post hoc come up with a rationalization about worrying about the chef. Absolutely. That's a, that's a possibility. Although by the end, we actually, it was hilarious because okay. the, the final question, we were actually getting some people say, oh yeah, I would just force myself to eat the ice cream anyway, because like, I would feel like I'd waste it if I didn't. And we're like, okay, I think, I think we finally yeah, yeah, got okay. it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, but, and, and, but even, and notably, even there, it could be that after we refined survey questions a lot more and did this on a whole bunch of other ones, that we would find that sometimes people would give self sort of like sort of deprecatory answers, even if those answers weren't really true. And so, you know, I mean, I've spent lots of time talking to people and asking people questions and helping people to explore what's going on in their mind. And the number of times people will say, oh, well, I just did this and there was no reason. And then you prompt them and you find, oh, wait, there was a reason, but they say it doesn't make sense. And then you ask again. And eventually this sort of quite complex and even in fact, quite coherent sort of explanation comes out. So there's, there's also a potential problem with people's self-reports even when people are saying, okay, I'm just doing the sunk cost fallacy activity. I agree. I agree. It's more like incrementally trying to get towards a truer, more accurate measurement. Well, yeah, absolutely. So this wasn't, this wasn't meant as a criticism. It's, it's rather that what you want to have is you want to have an instrument that stably gives the same answer. And so the big five could like the different the way of assessing that could be good my guess is that it is probably pretty costly i haven't looked into it in particular so i guess i'm interested in your thoughts on this for the big five how long does it take to administer the relevant survey do people's answers stay the same over the course of time to what degree are the answers affected by ambient conditions in the person's environment yeah, and those, those are all great questions. Uh, you know, and I think that the standard response from personality research will be something like, well, the test, first of all, testing comes in money forms, right? There's, there's versions of it that are, yeah. literally there are versions of it that are, you know, 10 questions and there are versions of it that are hundreds of questions. So, you know, yeah. it, it depends on what tool you want to use and there's competing tools. But for the kind of longer ones that are considered more robust, it's generally believed in the personality uh, world that they're pretty stable across time. So you could give one to someone now and you give it to them in a month and they get pretty similar answers. But then of course, it's like, well, what does pretty similar mean? You know, how similar is pretty similar? They also find that in twin studies, they seem to be able to explain part of personality genetically. I think it's something like they claim 50% of it is, is hereditary. Now, there's a lot of complexity in how you interpret that and what does that really mean? Yeah, yeah. But at yeah, least it's but at least that's better than if it said 10%, or if you said 10%, that would, you know, versus 50%, 50% makes us think, oh, maybe there's something real going on here. 
and so on. And, and I guess the way I think about it, I think of the big five as being far from perfect, but yeah. being also far better than nothing, if, uh, somewhere in the middle. If you'd like to reflect on your values and identify what sorts of things you value intrinsically, there's a useful and completely free tool for that at clearerthinking.org. There are lots of things that people value, career success, friendship, family, having fun. But intrinsic values are special because they are our most fundamental values. We value them for their own sake, and we would continue to value them even if they caused no other effects. Now, like most people, you're probably not aware of all of your different intrinsic values, even though they may be influencing your behavior and goals in numerous ways. So at Clearer Thinking, they've made a test to help you identify your intrinsic values. Taking the test will help you to figure out your most important intrinsic values, discover what your unique intrinsic values say about you, and understand why intrinsic values are so important. You can find the intrinsic values test as well as many other tools and mini courses on clearerthinking.org. And I guess this is why I'm such a huge fan of the engineering style approach where, you know, the, you know, I would be happy to grant that the big five is better than nothing, unless of course it's something like with engineering, you, you really need the thing to work. Like you, you don't want to have it be that you're sort of getting at the thing and like, 25% 25% of the time it works or something like that. Like when, when you think about something like the architecting of an experience, so you have companies that are putting together experiences for people. Disney, I think is a great example here. You've got, you know, Disney movies, but you also have their theme parks. And if they end up six, you know, so you think, you know, how many different sort of micro interactions are you having with a Disney product? Like a lot. And what happens if you are happy with 60% of them, neutral on 20% and very upset by 20%? Well, yeah, then this might be not a good ratio. <laughs> this is going to be really, really bad. In fact, you're going to need to get the strong negative reaction rate down really low and you're going to need to, and you can see that what's happening is that they're trying to create something where you have, I mean, it's essentially a machine. There's many, many different pieces and parts and they have to interact with people in such a way that the people end up having a good experience. And of course, then, you know, not everybody loves Disney. But at least for their target audience, they want to reliably produce a good experience. Yeah, that's right. And and they want their target audience to be large. And so it's not like they're just, you know, reducing their target audience to only the people who the thing works on. But you can, when you think about the Disney engineering mentalities, there's this great story about, I mean, I haven't, I haven't checked this, but the, the thing I heard, and so it'd be worth looking this up, but that when they were designing Disney World, I guess, or maybe Disneyland, there was a question about how to organize the sound system so that the sound would never feel like it was coming from any particular place. Hmm. Now that's, that's a, that like, you know, you could just think, well, we've got speakers and so forth. And obviously the effect isn't perfect, but you understand the idea that you just want to have it be that there's sound and it's ambient and it's not, you know, it coming from a physical speaker, like, uh, that breaks the illusion. And so the, I mean, that story, whether that one happens to be correct or not, there's absolutely a mentality 
of trying to get to precision engineering. Yeah, Apple the same way, right? Like there's lore that Steve Jobs was involved in the deciding what the bathrooms in an Apple store look like, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Apple, I mean, so you could think like Apple's a design company. Disney is also a design company in a particular way. And they're able to succeed at this. And then if you imagine the mentality of, well, you know, imagine you have somebody defending the big five saying, well, this is certainly better than nothing. There are problems. I don't think that mentality flies with like inside of like this sort of extreme, like it's, I'd say I'm worried the standards are low, right? Whereas when you're engineering, when you're building something, when you need people to have a particular experience, when you're trying to make a company that operates efficiently, the company itself is a different example is composed of tons of different parts. There's implicit parts, explicit. You've got the people, the culture, the things they're working with, internal, external audiences. It's all super complicated. And it has to be designed by people. Like, you know, businesses don't assemble themselves. You just have the founders and, you know, especially the founders, but also like higher level executives and so forth, just spending lots of time thinking about how to architect the business so that it does particular things. And so I think if it turns out that in 30 years, people say, well, the big five, you know, initially we thought it was stable, but it turns out it's less stable than we thought. And also it was on an audience that wasn't exactly representative. And also a bunch of the original studies didn't replicate. And it turned it out, turned out that a bunch of people were fiddling with the, the evidence in various ways. I don't know if anybody would really be that surprised, but if you're like, well, you know, it's like the standards when you're building something are high enough, like the thing has to work. And so I think there's a really, really important difference in mentality. And then there's also going to be a very important difference in feedback loops, which is a a further thing. With the big five, one of the biggest concerns I have is about circularity. Mm-hmm. So unlike some other parts of social science where you have had a really you know, significant replication crisis, which we can get into in a moment, in the personality research, it seems like a lot of it has been holding up better. In other words, when people go to replicate it, they generally seem to find the effects for the most part that others have found, which seems like a really good thing. But when mm-hmm. I've investigated these more closely, I yeah. have a sort of another kind of concern that comes up, which is, which is that of circularity. Uh, okay. Just as an example, imagine you do a big research study and you find some link between a personality trait and relationship satisfaction. Yeah. Okay. And you're like, ah, cool. So we have this interesting, robust finding that you know, personality helps predict to some extent how happy you are in a relationship. But then you look in at the questions being asked on, let's say, the emotional stability, also called neuroticism facet of the big five, and it's questions about worrying a lot, right? For example. And then you're like, well, but worrying a lot, like, of course, if your relationship is not going well, you're going to worry a lot. Like, what what have we actually proven, right? It's like, really, we've seen that asking people questions about whether they worry a lot is linked to whether they're having a bad relationship. Well, of course, right? And yep. those, are, those are not the only you know, questions on the, the neuroticism or emotional stability subscale. But now you're starting to say, what have we really figured out? And so with the personality stuff, I worry a lot about that, that some of the, not all the results, but that some of the results, when you really dig into them, you're like, well, we've shown something that we already knew or that we is of course true, but we haven't really learned something new. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think I'm a little less worried about what the was sort of like, so there's, there's this question of like, well, what did we really find? And I think 
absolutely in the long run, we're trying to figure out, you know, how everything really works and we want to understand how reality is set up. But one thing that we've learned over the history of science is that reality is extremely weird and maybe really far away from how we normally understand things. So I think that like the thing that I want to know is just, is it, is it measuring something that's stable enough and low cost enough that we can calibrate our other instruments off of it? You know, finding out that it gives roughly the same answers from, you know, month to month is definitely a positive sign. And then the more stable the thing is and the lower cost it is to assess, the more you can use that to then calibrate off of other things. And so, you know, it could be that when you measure neuroticism, you're actually looking at, you know, how bad the things are in the person's life because you're asking about worry and the people are just worrying about you know, things. And then maybe that things are going poorly is somewhat stable. And so you're actually measuring some fact about their environment rather than some sort of invariant fact about the personality. I'm okay with that. If it turns out that the personality tests are measuring something else, okay, cool. You know, in, in lots of cases, you identify a physical phenomenon and then, or you identify some natural phenomenon, and then later you conclude that it's different than you thought. The key point is whether the phenomenon is actually real. I mean, I'm pretty convinced that the Big Five is measuring something that's reasonably stable. You know, again, not perfectly stable, but I've seen enough studies now that have measured at different points in time on the same person, and the correlations are are pretty good. So I think I'm more worried about the predictive validity of it. In other words, like what can you use it to accurately predict than I am about the stability of it at this point. And yes, it's noisy. Like if you take it on a day where you slept badly and in a bad mood, you'll probably get somewhat different scores. But but I think at least what I've seen is, is, is reasonably good on that. But wh- why don't we talk about the replication crisis more generally, which for those of you who don't know, the replication crisis is this idea that in social science, increasingly we've come to learn that many studies, when people try to do the same study again or a very similar study again, they don't necessarily replicate the original finding. And my best estimate is that if you randomly sample from top journals in social science, their their findings, that maybe something like 40% of them won't replicate. Although that number is debated and it's a little bit hard to say because in practice, we can't truly randomly sample. Like, you know, you can't, it's not equally easy to replicate any given study. So we're going to tend to replicate the ones that are easier to replicate. And, you know, some people debate how to and analyze the statistics, is it 40% or 50% or whatever? But that's that's kind of where I land. So curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, and, and this sort of ties into some of the things that I was saying earlier, and you know, maybe even continuing the line about the big five personality test. I think what happened in telescopic astronomy with Galileo is really instructive. The, I mean, you could say that That was the first replication crisis. Obviously, there were ones before it, but, you know, Galileo looks through the telescope, sees the moons of Jupiter, gives the telescope to other people. They fail to replicate his findings. I think that's usually taken as a sign of them being biased or something, right? But you're saying, no, it's just like the tool is hard to use and it wasn't that obvious what you were looking at. Yeah, yeah. there's there's a standard story about how the people weren't open-minded, but, you know, this was a handheld really low quality telescope. I mean, this is, uh-huh. you know, first telescope used to look at the stars and the people will not have had time to learn to use it. And 
it's really difficult to tell telescope artifacts apart from real things that you're actually seeing. And you had genuinely interested people who were trying to discover the things. And in fact, I, I read about some, there's some professor nowadays who's, you know, talking about their students and giving them something like a replica of Galileo's telescope and having them look and then some of them see the moons and some of them don't and some see some of them and so on. So it's not like, you know, religious bias has clouded the minds of the people who <laughs> were doing that. Rather, what was happening was you had a new, very intriguing, but low quality instrument. And so you were getting uncertain readings. At that point, like the way that the science didn't develop was Galileo takes one measurement and reports it. Everyone believes it. Some number of years later, there's, you know, other findings are been called into question. And so we're testing things in general. Someone decides to replicate it and also points a telescope up at the moons of Jupiter, second observation, fails to see them. And now there's a crisis. Okay, that, that's not what happened. What happened was that Galileo will have made a very, very, very large number of observations. And all of the other telescopic astronomers will start trying to make those observations. And the total cost of an attempt to make an observation is, well, you got to get a telescope. So there's an initial upfront cost. But once you have it, the cost is extremely low. And so the total number of attempted replications is going to be extremely high. I mean, I'll say at least 10,000. It's obviously going to be more than that, right? But the, and so when I look at the replication crisis in modern psychology, and you have an instrument that the person has used in their experiment, maybe they've only used it once. So this is a new instrument and they found a result and then someone else tries to use that instrument and doesn't find the result, then, you know, well, of course, I mean, it, you know, it's not a particularly refined instrument. This is what you would expect. The thing you really want is not to replicate some of the studies or a statistically significant sample of the studies what you really want to do is replicate the studies like 10,000 times each. <laughs> that would be a dramatic departure. My understanding is that something like 4% of studies get replicated <laughs> or lower, and usually the replication is done by the same team that did the first one. Yeah, yeah. Well, well so, and, and the reason I, I'm saying, I mean, 10,000, if we're thinking about the number of times that observations were replicated in telescopic astronomy, it's obviously many more than 10,000, but this is also going to be true for a bunch of the basic things in chemistry, in physics, and so on. In the fields that became successful, they didn't replicate 4% of the findings once. They had a basic set of observations that were replicated thousands and thousands of times. Now, and then as soon as you know, I say that, you're like, oh, but the, but the cost of replicating a psychology experiment is actually pretty high. You know, maybe it, you know, you had to gather your 30 undergraduate students and you administered the survey and like, you know, the whole thing took a couple of days or it took a week, or maybe if you're doing something more elaborate, maybe it took a month or more than that. And then if you want to replicate something like that 10,000 times, then you are like, well, this is just too expensive. And this is, this is sort of my point then, which is, and this sort of relates generally to the idea of sort of engineering, recognizing the sheer number of replications that you actually should be doing 
causes, like forces you to have to pursue really, really low cost methods. Like you wouldn't do an elaborate experiment. I mean, this is why I start to worry about cost with the big five, where maybe it takes 20 minutes to fill out, a, you know, one of the versions of it or something like that. Though it's like a bit unclear what happens if you continue to measure again. If like you're constantly on the same people, having them take the same survey, then maybe they're going to start using their memories or something like that. What I want for psychology is a way of doing simple observations that can very, very, very easily be replicated so that the, or very easy in the sense that the total cost of replicating is really low so that you can get into a cycle of instrument refinement. That's really interesting. A couple of things I want to say about that. Yeah. First is that one of the things I find impressive, both about cognitive behavioral therapy and about meditation, is that they make claims that at first are not obviously true, but then you can literally introspect on yourself. And if you pay close attention, you'll just realize they're true. Yeah. And, so you can, and then you can repeat it on yourself like a bunch of times. You're like, oh, that's clearly true. So cognitive behavioral therapy, an example is that they claim that your thoughts change your emotions, okay? And they also claim that your emotions change your thoughts. And so you can start paying attention. The next time you're feeling really upset, you can just pay attention. What thoughts am I having, right? Let me write them down. And then go read the same thoughts later when you're not feeling upset and you'd be like, wow, I was thinking that. That's like totally bonkers, right? Right, right. so, that, so it's just very verifiable, but very in a very convincing way. And simply with meditation, your meditation will make, you know, it depends on which school of meditation, but you know, some meditation schools will make claims like, if you pay really close attention, you'll notice that your thoughts will suddenly appear from nowhere. You like, might think of yourself as the thinker of your thoughts, but they're actually just popping into your awareness as though yep. you're not in control of them. You're like, you can do that experiment. And it's very, it's very convincing if you do it carefully. So I, th- I find that super interesting. And then another thing I would say about this is that, as you know, I'm super interested in the question of how do we make psychology research much faster, cheaper, easier. And we've, yeah. we've done a lot of work on that. And I think there's a lot of progress that can be made in that front. Just to give one example, one time we were reading a marketing blog post that made what we thought was a very bizarre and remarkable claim. And its claim was that in English, phonemes break into two clusters. And so cluster one of phonemes they, they claimed are associated with seven different traits, like being fast, angular, different things like that. Mm-hmm. And then they claimed that the opposite group of phonemes, the other one, was, was associated with the opposite traits, like being slow, being rounded, oh, yeah. et cetera. I've, yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah, yep, yep. So we saw this blog post that evening. We decided to replicate, to try to replicate it. We designed a study where we would automatically construct random words that were either built from phonemes from the first group and, or the second group. And we would tell participants, this is a rare word. What do you think it means? It either means fast or slow, which you think it is. It either means rounded or, rounded or angular. What do you think it means? And yeah, yeah. by doing that, by the next morning, we'd recruit 100 participants. We'd then analyze the data. We then got in touch with the author and got him on the phone and told him about our results. And that whole process was done by the next, you know, early the next day. Yeah. And amazingly, we actually replicated six out of the seven results, which blew my mind because I thought there was no way this is going to replicate. But yeah. but yeah, it was fascinating. So so to me, that is like how I want social science to be so that you maybe, okay, maybe you're not doing 10,000 replications, but you can do one in a few hours and then someone else can do another in a few hours and so on. Yeah. So we got... Two really interesting topics here. One, the CBT and meditation. The second on rapid social science. On CBT and meditation, the approach that I would take there, 
and in fact did take in my own research on the topic fits a lot with what I'm saying about engineering. I think that introspection is itself, you should think of it as a tool or an instrument. And then there is a question of when is it reliable? When is it not reliable? You know, you could say something like, well, you just tell people to pay attention to their thoughts, except that different people will interpret the instruction, pay attention, or the category thought really differently. I mean, I'm familiar with cases of people learning to introspect where the people had difficulty introspecting because there was a lot of things that were occurring in their mind that they hadn't classified as the sort of things that you would introspect on. It's sort of like, if you imagine them looking at the dashboard of their mind, you're like, look for flashing lights. And they're like, there don't seem to be any flashing lights. And you're like, over there on the side panel. And they're like, oh, but those are always flashing. <laughs> That's <funny. laughs> And you're like, yes, yes, I'm actually talking about those. Have you noticed the following patterns? And they're like, well, huh, that's interesting. And so I think with introspection, I think that it's an extremely promising route for the sort of tool that would be necessary for getting psychology onto the sort of track of becoming a really solid science. I mean, it's with introspection, it's the sort of thing where you could do a very, very large number of extremely low cost tests. And that is the sort, and then, you know, what you're saying where you're like, oh, well, if you just introspect, then you'll observe these things. And I've talked to so many people that at this point, I know that some people will see those things. Some people won't see those things, but that's actually okay. It's sort of like with the telescope where some people will see the moons, some people won't see the moons, no big problem. What we need to do is figure out how to give better introspective instructions, figure out what are the different things that people are doing when you give them different introspection instructions. But this provides a route by which you could engage in the process of instrument refinement. And then if you do that, you're actually conducting the scientific sort of process in a way that much more matches a number of things that happened historically. So I'm, I'm, I'm something like a, a huge fan of the introspective sort of methods with the caveat that you're starting with a tool that's not yet refined. Yeah, just to react to that, I mean, I think yeah. this is the bane of anyone who's like trying to teach meditation, right? Is that's like, how do you actually describe to the person what you mean Yes. When you're asking them to do something. And then, you know, part of the re reason, you know, the meditation has, is so hard to understand is just because, you know, it was developed thousands of years ago and there's all these language translation issues and then there's a religious element and so on. But part of it is just, it's very, very hard to talk about what's happening internally and we don't really have a language for it. And you kind of have to invent metaphors or other ways of talking about it. Right. And, and so you could, and in fact, meditation has been developed in many times and places. There's tons of different meditation traditions. The difficulty in communicating about it frequently leads those traditions to go extinct where, you know, the original teacher manages to communicate it to five people and they don't actually figure out how to communicate it, but they get a copy communicated to another 25. And then you get a copy of a copy of a copy effect. And then the thing no longer works or is useful. That's happened a whole bunch of times. And if there was some way to cause there to be something, maybe it's the correct description, maybe it's some sort of you know external referent, but something that would allow the introspective practice
practices to be transmitted more reliably, that's the sort of thing where then, okay, maybe we can start accumulating knowledge. So that's, that's something that I'm super excited about. And so do you want to talk a little bit about focusing? Sure. Yeah. So one, a, a great example of a, an introspective technique uh, is the technique focusing created by Eugene Jenlin. So people who would like to learn about this, there's a book focusing. You should check out the audio book because you get to actually hear people going through and using the process and talking about it and, and hearing people actually doing that is, is much more instructive than just reading about it in a text or in text format. But essentially, there's a process or procedure whereby you find felt senses in your body and then you attend to them and you try to find words that sort of capture what's going on. I mean, I'll, you know, if you're interested in this, then, you know, check out the, check out the um, audiobook. And then Jenlin developed this technique looking at patients in, in, who were in therapy. Some patients seemed to be getting better and some didn't. And Jenlin thought that he had distinguished an important difference between the way that the, the people who were improving were interacting with their own thoughts versus the people who were not improving. And so by studying that, that was sort of the, the original story for where focusing came from. But I think focusing is the most sort of promising publicly available thing out there. And, and I think that you know, attempts in this direction are, are really promising. And it's the sort of research I think is really valuable. Yeah, I think that's a the really interesting example. And for me, I, I found focusing quite interesting. And it certainly helped me think about how the incredible importance of being able to make, make correct introspective observations on yourself. And it yeah. also got me thinking about one other thing I'll just mention quickly, which is that I think a lot of times people don't feel like they really understand themselves or they don't understand their emotions. Like they might feel angry, but they don't really know why and they have trouble seeing why. And there yeah. seems to be so much value in getting better at identifying why we feel this way we do, why we think what we do. And just one technique, just as a kind of useful takeaway yeah. that I found, I call it the inner why technique, which mm -hmm. is that if you can learn to notice right when your emotion shifts, it's yeah. often a lot easier to tell why because basically there's just not that much has happened in the last like three seconds, yes. right? It's like, oh, three seconds ago, this person had not said this thing. And now they said this thing. It's the only thing that's changed. And suddenly now I'm feeling angry. It's like, okay, it's probably because of what they said. Yep. And I, I think it massively improves introspection. And I think some of the time when we can't figure out why we feel something, it's actually because it happened like 10 minutes ago. And we actually miss that moment when the emotion changed. And so we like don't know what to pin it on. So that's just been really useful for myself. Yeah. And, and actually, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of literature that's quite skeptical about introspection, though notably a lot of that research is not looking at trained introspectors trying to introspect on things that are happening at the time. And so I basically think, yeah, it, it's, I, I myself have also gotten a lot of mileage out of trying to pay closer attention to what's actually happening in my mind right now. And you know, what thought did I just have right before the emotion changed or what event just happened right before the emotion changed? And I think that it's, 
it's, it's very easy to have a self-concept as a person who doesn't care about X or wouldn't react negatively to Y and then to fail to sort of put the dots together when actually, you know, you do react to one or another thing. Yeah, I, I think that's such a good point because if you can zoom in on that three seconds when your emotion changed, you might learn, oh, wait, no, I really am the sort of person that gets angry when someone does this thing, even <laughs> if I don't think of myself that way because I just saw that it happened. So that's super yeah. interesting. And, and then just to, to put a, a final note on that, I also feel like each emotion has different kinds of information. And so that's like another really fruitful area is saying, okay, I'm feeling angry now versus I'm feeling sad now. And it might actually be a very similar thing that happened. Yeah. But by reading into the emotion of anger versus sadness, you actually can learn about your interpretation of that or how you think about it. Like anger, yeah. in my experience, usually means that you think some agent is trying to block you or take something yeah. of value from you. Whereas yeah. sadness is much more likely to be, you think there's some loss occurring. Mm -hmm. and, and so like, for example, when I feel sad, my preferred reaction is to say, what do I feel like I've just lost? And then that, I've just found that to be a really fruitful line of thinking. And then it helps me explore my emotion. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I agree with that. And it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you can sort of relate this to the sort of larger question we were discussing earlier about the scientific enterprise and how well that's going. Because the thing you're describing is, on one hand, really totally straightforward, right? The idea that your emotions are caused by things around you and that by paying attention to them, you could learn more about how you're reacting is actually a really, really sort of basic and sort of obvious idea. Now, I mean, essentially, there have been a lot of critiques where it's like, well, introspection isn't always reliable, which is true. And when you're introspecting on something and find that X, well, maybe you weren't actually even accessing your own beliefs or attitudes or something. Yep, that's, that's also true. And so I think that there's, there's something like maybe the original more naive position, which is that we have instant and infallible access to lots of things in the mind without any sort of concern about errors or ways in which we could be misled. Then there's one step beyond that, which is there are a lot of ways that the mind can be wrong about itself. And I feel like that's something like been sort of largely adopted into the scientific consensus. But then there's this further question, which is, is it possible to learn to refine our understanding of how to access and interface with our own thoughts and emotions in a way that actually does give reliable evidence. And this, this is something where I think that like, this is something like a really great way to go. It, it's, you want to think about introspection and the related methods as instruments, sort of like the telescope. Note that different people will use it differently and you will use it differently from time to time. And also you don't really understand how the you know relevant correlative optics work. Like how does introspection work exactly? You don't know. But even noting that then, and this is where the engineering perspective comes in, there's then this practical task of learning how to use this instrument, introspection, how to refine it in such a way that you know when you're actually sort of lying to yourself or you know that you're not looking at the emotion or you know that X, Y, and Z. And so I think that then like the 
and, and I, I think that then there's this interesting question of where science should go overall and how, you know, we, we talked about solving the replication crisis. You also mentioned your own efforts in going for much sort of faster testing. You know, you, you talked about, you know, really, you know, within the space of less than a day, replicating a bunch of experiments with a large number of participants. I mean, I, I maybe you could point me to somebody who's doing it better, but I've thought that your work in trying to refine the instruments uh, like the sort of the, the modern favored or the contemporary favored instruments is the best that I've seen. Like if I hear about a survey that has, you know, been used once or twice on a group of 30 people and it took, you know, a little while to assemble the people and so maybe the entire thing took a day to do, that seems really not promising to me as the sort of endpoint for what measurement will look like when psychology becomes a mature discipline. It's got to be that we're using methods that have been tested, like, you know, keep it simple, 10,000 times as much, possibly more, and that are much, much cheaper and much, much faster. And so, I've thought, you know, for myself, I have spent more time working on trying to refine introspection as a tool so as to be able to get, you know, what are good descriptions of the conditions under which it works and exactly how do you do it and et cetera, to make it so that it's very, very fast, very, very reliable. And then I see your work as on surveys where you, you talked about refining the survey questions sort of over and over again. That is exactly the sort of thing that should happen if surveys are going to be the future of psychology. I mean, you, you want to get it to be that you can extremely quickly use surveys that you know what the answers actually mean, or even that's too high of a bar, but something like you want to be able to get access to, you know, you want high volume and low cost and reliability in use. And so I've seen a bunch of your efforts as trying to push things in that direction. And so I think one or other of these things are the sorts of things that could be used to try to solve the replication crisis. But note that they have a really similar core, which is that they're trying to refine the instruments to a point where you can very, very reliably do certain types of measurements. Yeah, and I think there's a really strong analogy between the work that you do and the work that I do. And we're both trying in some sense to tackle the question of how do you understand how humans work in a much yeah. more reliable way? And I'm using a technology-focused you know, strategy, yep. uh, but also process-focused, you know, like processes for honing questions, things like that. And you're approaching it from the opposite direction, I would yes. say in some yep. sense, but it's interesting. And I think there's, you know, advantages and disadvantages of both of those approaches. And obviously each of us thinks our approach is superior. Otherwise we would have switched to the other person's approach. But that sure. being said, there's also a complementary nature where there's certainly yep. things that are better to study one way versus another. Are world events affecting your mental health? Try Uplift. The Boston Globe said this app could be the future of mental health and it's used by thousands of people. In a study on Uplift, users felt an average of 52% better in just one month. 
It comes with 12 interactive and information-packed sessions that help you master well-being skills that are typically taught in therapy. You do the sessions independently, but the Uplift narrator feels like you've got a compassionate mentor guiding you towards long-lasting success the entire way. You'll also have a toolbox of mood-boosting techniques in your pocket at all times that you can use to feel immediate relief when you need it. The first session and several tools are free, and you can try the full program with a seven-day trial. Discover Uplift and feel happier, calmer, and mentally stronger. To find out more and to get started, visit uplift.app. That's uplift.app. That leads me to something I just want to mention, which is about this idea of iterative science. So you know this idea that sometimes, you know, quantity has a quality all of its own. And I would argue that speed can have a quality all of its own sometimes as well. And what I found with doing super fast, iterative social science research, it can be almost a completely different type of thing where just as an example, we'll be running a study on something. The first study, what we'll learn is that that study was a total train wreck. We'll use what we learned to design a better study. We'll run that and we'll learn that that study was flawed. We'll use what we learned from that to run a third study. We're like, oh, now we're actually learning something. But yes. we haven't, we, but turns out we haven't answered all the questions. Then we run a fourth study. I mean, sometimes this will happen seven times. You know, right, we'll run right. seven studies that from the outside are like, they're kind of similar, but from the inside, it's like, no, no, no. But the first two were like completely not learning the thing we intended to learn. And then we started sort of learning it, but we're still not there. And so to me, that's actually like, it's like the world is such a complicated place that I become increasingly skeptical that you can sit, think of a hypothesis, design a study test it with a randomized control trial and like have sensible results all but the you know rarest of times. Like, sure, maybe that maybe there are such geniuses that can do that. But in practice, for the vast majority of social scientists, it seems to be much more plausible that you actually need to do studies just to learn how to do studies, just to learn how to do studies, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that there, what you're talking about is something like contact with the object, like a really sort of you know, zoomed out sort of very intuitive idea might be that if you're studying an object, you want to get into a lot of contact with it. Exactly. And, and so the, you know, introspection is a great example here where, you know, there you have a mind, you're trying to get in contact with the mind. And by the way, it's while I've thought that refining introspection is actually a better way in for psychology than doing the sorts of tests and and sort of survey refinement that you've been doing. I have thought that your approach might be quite good for getting a certain type of sociological information. And so, and then at the beginning, I'm also, you know, frequently quite agnostic as to what is the object that's really being studied. So I just wanted to flag that. Which type of sociological information? Um, Well, the... The thing that is, I mean, I would say that when you're studying any sort of object, you, you want to, you know, something like the simplest version is get as close to that object as you can. And so I think, you know, this is a sort of heuristic that would incline one towards introspection if the thing you're studying is the mind. Whereas, like, let's say you're using Mechanical Turk to do surveys at a, you know, really fast, really sort of cheap then the sort of thing you're really studying is much more people's question answering behavior. And it's going to be substantially harder to go from that 
at least in this is prima facie. It's like in, in these things, it's, it's frequently difficult to tell what avenue will unlock which other avenue, but it, it seems at least prima facie, like it's going to be harder to go from people's question answering behavior where you're not working with the same people over and over again. You're working with different populations to get from their answers to something more like the mental dynamics. Whereas I could see like something like the super fast tests as being like a much more flexible version of polling where you're learning a lot more about what people are reporting. And then of course, if you have other reasons to believe that reports are more or less accurate in different times, then, you know, then that's great. And you can bridge from one to the other. So you could say like social phenomenon about like how people report their identity and how people report yeah, their yeah. views about other people and stuff. I'll just add something there, which is that, yes, we use surveys a lot, but we also, just to clarify, we also do a lot of experiments where we're randomizing something and seeing how that impacts people's responses. So I, I feel like that's just another powerful element I just want to mention. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, I have a lot of respect for your approach and don't expect that I'd be able to summarize all of its, summarize it in a way that captured all of its virtues. One of the things that's interesting maybe to explore is why you and I both have thought that the right way forward for learning about people involves doing something that's importantly different than what a lot of people are doing right now in the field. Yeah, that's a great question. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. So I think that the, and this this also relates to, there's a sort of So we had our original question of science and how well is science doing. There's a related question about what's happening in academia, where I think that one of the things that people, I'd say, haven't really appreciated as much as, as would be good is that there's a really interesting effect that happens when you increase the size of a field or when you decrease it, especially when the field is meant to be making authoritative statements on a particular topic. If, you know, and so then a lot of people have tried to believe that science has slowed down and are trying to pin the blame on academia. I think that only, you know, academia is historically only responsible for some of scientific advances. And we should carefully separate the question of how well academia is functioning from how well is science going in our society. But one thing that has absolutely, at least I think, has affected the field is the way in which academia has really substantially expanded over the last hundred years. Um, This is especially true after World War II and after Sputnik. There's a lot of motivation to fund more scientific research and led to the creation of uh, a sort of much, much larger institution than previously existed. The, the reason that the size matters a lot here is that I think a lot of people have this intuition that the way that you produce, the way that you get breakthroughs is the way you discover things about the world is you get smart people and you have the smart people figure things out. And so then the way to have that work better is you get more money and you hire more smart people and you have those smart people figure out more things. It's like quite intuitive. There's a problem though, which is that if the people who are doing that are at the same time expected to be able to speak authoritatively, then 
you need to have some way for there to be sort of quote unquote, what the field currently agrees on or like what the, you know, what, what have we discovered officially mm-hmm. and the sorts of things that different sizes of groups of people can agree on are really different. So if you have 10 physicists or psychologists or, you know, chemists or whichever field, and you want them to agree, that's a really different challenge than if there's a hundred. And that's a really different challenge than if there's like thousands. And what sort of things are, is it harder to get them to agree on when there's more people? Well, so one thing is, I mean, one simple one, and this goes a bit into the question of what's happening with academia, is that you don't know the people very well. You, you know, as the total number of people goes up, the amount of time you'd get to spend with them is substantially less. The degree to which you'd be able to make a personal judgment about the people goes down quite substantially. And so what ends up happening is that in general, as you scale up the size of things, there's a push to adopt more legible standards. And so it comes to be that the people are being judged by, you know, at the more extreme end number of publications in which journals and also quality of publication as measured by impact factor. Because you need, basically you need something that everyone can agree on. Like, who do we trust? Well, we try, we, we have needs some metric that everyone can see because we don't know the per- people personally because there's too many people to know them. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. And so, but it's interesting because then as the number of people in the field goes up and the standards change for assessing what's happening, that doesn't necessarily make it so that the standards are more, are, are like better tuned to the making, to either making scientific discoveries or, and then this is a different thing that I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I think that a lot of the critiques about science and a lot of the critiques of academia tend to have either as the tacit or stated conclusion that because of problems A, B, or C, or whichever, people aren't making the discoveries that they should make. I've been exploring the possibility that actually people are making lots of discoveries and are figuring things out. In a way, this is a really pro sort of establishment attitude in a particular way. I think that in general, smart people do figure things out. And usually, not always, there's things like confirmation bias, but usually they can tell when they are figuring things out. And when they're not, then they switch to something that seems more tractable. And so I currently think that what's a lot of what's happening is that there are lots of people who are doing research, they are discovering things, but the discoveries and the things that they're figuring out aren't getting added together and incorporated into a standing body of knowledge. I mean, another way to say this is that you could think that the problem is a problem of discovery, but I think it's actually more a problem of, of accumulation. Yeah, well, you know, if the replication crisis is real, and let's say, for the sake of argument, 40% of social science results don't yeah. hold up, yeah. but, but they're in the public and, you know, they're, they're published in papers and in good journals, yep. it's like, that's not a house you want to, that's not a foundation you want to build your house on, right? It's like, so much of that doesn't hold up, then how are you going to build on top of that? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the replication crisis is a really good sort of data point or part of this in that the, the problem for replication 
you know, at first glance, you might think the problem is, well, those particular studies that don't replicate, and then maybe some of the other studies don't replicate. So maybe we're not discovering the things that we think that we're discovering. I absolutely do think that that's a problem. But there's this larger problem, which is now that you know that a certain percentage of the results aren't going to hold up, it's much harder to tell whether like which of the things you should believe. And so this makes it so that the things that are being discovered, it's going to be very challenging to recognize them as actually having been discoveries. Yep. And there's, I mean, I think there's examples where whole bodies of literature grew out of a paper that now has been called into question. And then you could see why people would be increasingly reluctant to you know, build on these foundations if they're not sure they're going to hold up in 10 years. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think we can be confident that people are going to continue publishing papers and doing studies. But even if the people branch out and, you know, people aren't building on previous things or just building new things, there's, I'm trying, I'm trying to figure out how to sort of convey this concisely, but like, so take for instance, your work in getting the surveys to be more accurate reflections of what you're trying to measure. As, as part of doing that, you probably had like quite a large number of insights on the topic of how to do better survey design. That's the sort of information that is really essential and the sort of thing that you'd really want to be to be taken into account. But I think what's happening is not that nobody's figuring out, nobody else is figuring out things about how to do survey design. It's more that well, I think lots of people are probably figuring out lots of things about survey design. If you could somehow magically collect all of the insights on survey design from the field and combine them, that would be really great. But what's actually happening is that people are figuring out a lot of things, and then they're not figuring out how to communicate those things to other people in the field so that those get adopted. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And you see examples of this where, let's say, some statistic will be used for a really long time and people will realize that there's something wrong with using that statistic. For example, I believe this happened with the trim and fill method for meta-analyses, mm-hmm. where basically people did an analysis that showed that sometimes it gives just the wrong result in meta-analysis or doesn't correct for bias yeah. like it's supposed to. Because I think it's supposed to correct for papers that were never published that might've had a negative result. Yep. And then it's like, well, but people have just been using this for a really long time. And there's just such a huge momentum towards using it. And if you use it, you know, the, the reviewer, the journal is probably not going to challenge you on it because it's standard and so on. And so you kind of get this knowledge that it doesn't get disseminated properly. Yeah. And so it's interesting because I've thought that in terms of sort of your and my approaches to these things, they seem like the sorts of things that are designed to produce new tools that would allow a bunch of researchers to work together in a way that made it much easier for them to share information. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Well, I also wanted to add something about, about what you're saying about having to have publicly verifiable metrics once you have a large group of people, which is something we didn't talk about, which I think is really important, is this idea of gameability. And this comes up in uh, a tribe as well. Like if you have a tribe of 30 people living together their whole lives, it's probably pretty difficult to defect regularly on the tribe and not get punished for it. But if you have a tribe of a million people, you know, you live in a a pretty large city, you can just defect on people over and over and over again. And there's always someone new to defect on. And 
like the information doesn't travel very well, right? And similarly, if if the way that you get prestige is through these like verifiable metrics of papers published in top journals, et cetera, that's maybe much more gameable of a system than the system of like, well, I know that person and I know that they're a good researcher and I've had hour-long discussions with them. I, I think that this is true, though there's a way in which, so you know, a lot of people talk about you know, the gameability of the system and people cutting corners and things like that. And I tend to think that uh, like a number of those critiques are are correct. Like obviously some things like that are happening to some degree, but there, there's a question of emphasis where, I mean, especially if you go and talk to people who are the most dismissive of academia, right? Or the people who try to analyze it, quote unquote, just in terms of incentives or something like that, they tend to forget that a whole lot of the people are are there to find the truth. Like, the, you know, why, the, you know, you could model the people as profit maximizers, but I think the profit maximizers largely went into different professions. Like, I think that overall there's, I mean, of course there will be people who will unscrupulously game. And then of course there will be tons of sort of subconscious or unconscious gaming where the people need to publish in order to advance. Like, absolutely. But I still think that there are just tons and tons of people inside academia and outside but people who are doing research and trying to figure things out who are genuinely motivated to find the truth. I'd love to know the percentage, but I don't yet think that the gaming has encompassed 80% of the whole. I think it's less <laughs> than that. I, I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, I, sometimes people say these really silly things like, well, people have no incentive to get the right answer. It's like, yeah, well, yeah. actually they do. They have a, they want yes. to think of themselves as a scientist and they want to understand this phenomenon and so on and so forth. Right. And the fields like in the long run really reward seminal contributions. Like if you, if you figure out something important, then once the field eventually figures that out, then they remember it. And so there's, there's, absolutely a huge incentive from the profession for people to really figure things out. I would also add, though, that there may be a weird kind of evolutionary selection bias that operates against that, which is that if yep. someone is willing to cut a lot more corners than someone else, yep. but they're, the way they're cutting corners are not obvious in the finished product of the paper. You know, people yep. say like a paper is not the science itself. It's like, you know, a marketing version of the science, right? It's like summarized, boiled down to its yep. essence, but, yep. it, but it hides a lot and it necessarily does because, you know, if it didn't, it would be hundreds of pages. So if someone is able to cut corners that don't appear in the final paper and therefore are not obvious to anyone reading it, they're going to tend to succeed faster and, and their, their careers will grow faster. What do you think about that? I mean, absolutely. As an, as an abstract general point, gamers inside of systems frequently have advantages because they're optimizing for one thing rather than another. So absolutely. But I think that, and then this sort of brings us back to a question about the state of the science and what helps sciences to advance. The more it's possible for people to share discoveries and check with each other, the harder it is for people to game the entire system because you essentially, it's much easier for there to be a coalition of people who are not trying to game it or whose gaming propensities are notably lower. And so in mathematics, for example, you can check whether the results follow or if you can't check because it's some subfield, then 
someone else can check and the checking is reliable. So the gaming isn't going to occur at the level of proof. There is this weird question of how important the different questions are. And so maybe there will be gaming occurring around the question of how important the things are. But I think it's really notable because in the fields that have come up with better ways for people to be able to check each other's results, I think it reduces the ease of gaming quite substantially. And so I would say like in, in math and physics, it's substantially harder to game the system than it is in psychology or in sociology. And that's not necessarily the inherent quote unquote nature of the thing. The mind is mysterious. Will we ever understand it? It has to do with the stage that the thing is at. I think that if it was possible, if you had much more refined instruments that allowed people to much more easily do high volume testing of things, it's, it becomes harder to game the system. It still is going to be possible having a perfect system, you know, seems like it's solving a different problem with human nature. But I think that if yeah, the, the, the more you have the actual ability for people to share and check each other's things, the easier it is for the more truth oriented people to form a coalition. Yeah, if you knew that lots of people were going to go try to check your thing, uh, you you'd suddenly, even if you wanted to game the system, suddenly your incentives change, right? It's a, it's a, a lot riskier. Okay. And then also just the question of self-deception becomes one where if you start yep. self-deceiving, you're, you're going to uncover yep. it much faster. Yeah, if you had either a really reliable introspective method or a really reliable, you know, fast mechanical Turk-based survey method such that something comes up in conversation and so you check it. Somebody pulls out their computer and runs a thousand person study at the press of a button. I've been known to do that to people after a dinner conversation. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right. So, but so if you had refined enough tools in that direction or if somebody makes a claim and then people all introspect and they're like, ah, no, I don't, you know, uh, I don't really get that. Um, then it provides this check. And so this is why I, this is one of the reasons that I think the development of reliable, high throughput, low cost, or instruments that let you do that sort of testing is essential and why you actually see things like that happening in the history of science. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on today. This was really interesting. Yeah, thanks, Spencer. This was great. Thanks again for listening. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at clearerthinkingpodcast at gmail.com, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 321-341-4669. And by the way, if you do leave us a voicemail, we might use the audio on the show. To find out more about Spencer, visit spencergreenberg.com. To find out more about Jeff, take a look at his bio in the show notes. And to find out more about our show, visit clearerthinkingpodcast.com. If you like the show, we hope you'll rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We also hope you'll subscribe to our email newsletter called One Helpful Idea. Each week, we'll send you one idea that we think is really valuable that you can read about in just 30 seconds, along with that week's new podcast episode. You can sign up for the newsletter on our website, clearerthinkingpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.